Good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning I want to discuss with you an issue which, in my opinion, is becoming increasingly important in our times. And the thing that brought this kind of to a head in my mind is the protests in Hong Kong. In those protests, images and videos have been a major driving force. The issue that I want to discuss with you is the growing impact that images are having in our world. We're going to start by examining several passages of Scripture where God himself speaks about his intentional choice of language to reveal himself and his prohibitions against using images to represent him. Then we'll consider some reasons why he has revealed himself through words. After that, we'll discuss the differences between words and images and why images are both powerful and dangerous. And finally, I will suggest some ways in which we can protect ourselves from the dangers that images present in our time. As you can see in your program, the title of my message is Images and Words, Why God Reveals Himself in Language. Let's begin by looking at a number of passages from the Old Testament regarding God's chosen means of revealing himself. And I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 3. If you wish, you can read along with me, or if you wish, just close your Bibles and listen as I read. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him, from the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, this event is a classic example of what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is a visible and often audible manifestation of God. It's a means by which God calls the attention of men to his presence. In this theophany, when Moses turns to examine the bush, he sees neither a face nor a form. All that he sees is a miraculous kind of fire that does not consume the bush in which it appears to to burn. Now, a similar theophany takes place In Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham, at that time called Abram, has a conversation with God. During that conversation, God will instruct Abraham to kill several animals, to split their bodies, and then to arrange their severed bodies in the customary pattern for a covenant-cutting ceremony. But in order to prevent Abraham from participating in the cutting of the covenant... God then places Abraham into a kind of a trance, what we would call 
an altered state of consciousness in which he can see and he can hear, but he cannot move. Verse 12 of Genesis 15 describes it this way. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. God then provides a theophany for the paralyzed but watching Abraham. Listen to how it's described in verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. That fire moving between the severed carcasses of the animals represents God as he expresses his obligation to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And here again, as we saw in Exodus chapter 3, God uses fire and smoke as a symbol of his presence. Here again, Abraham sees no form, he sees no face. Well, we come to another theophany in Exodus chapter 19, when God appears to Moses and the entire company of Israel at Mount Sinai. Listen to Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Try to imagine yourself there at the base of that mountain, as the very ground upon which you are standing is shaking, as fire and smoke are enveloping the mountain, as the eerie sound of a trumpet seeming to come from nowhere echoes down the mountainside. Having captured the attention of the Israelites, God then declares aloud the Ten Commandments as they stand terrified, hearing his voice at the base of the smoking mountain. They hear his voice, but they see no form. Here again, God reveals his presence in ways that exclude any possibility of his appearance being recorded in the images. God uses thunder, lightning, clouds, smoke, and the very shaking of the earth to alert the people to his presence. But once he has their attention, what does he use? He uses words. He uses language to reveal himself and his commands to the people of Israel. In the very first commandment, he forbids the Israelites to worship any other deity. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And in the second commandment, he forbids the use of any kind of image in worship. It's upon this second commandment that I really want to focus our attention today. 
Now, I believe that the full significance of the second commandment is often misunderstood, even by us who know Christ. Let me read the second commandment to you, and after that we will consider the very first time that the Israelites broke the second commandment. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. These words were spoken by God himself. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, many people assume that this verse is a prohibition against making and venerating idols, statues of false gods, and that understanding is correct as far as it goes, but it is incomplete. Do you remember what's going to happen a few weeks later? In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain. He's been up there for nearly 40 days, receiving and recording God's instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. But down at the base of the mountain, the Israelites, under the guidance of Aaron, have been preparing a golden calf to worship. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what the Israelites say when that completed calf is presented to them. I'm going to read it to you first the way it's translated in the New American Standard and the New King James Version. This is what they say. This is your God, capital G, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, some English translations translate this a little bit differently, and you may have one of them. For example, the NIV and the NET translate the sentence this way. These are your gods, small g, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, both of those translations are grammatically possible. God, capital G, gods, small g. But I'm convinced that this is your God, capital G, is correct because of the qualifier that follows it. O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. God is furious, and he threatens to exterminate the Israelites. Why? Because they have just broken the second commandment just days after it was given to them. Now, listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. What the Israelites did when they worshipped the golden calf was not worshiping other deities beside the true God of Israel. They were not worshiping someone other than Yahweh. What they did was worshiping the one true God, but in a forbidden way. You see, in the second commandment, a commandment which we rightly understand as a prohibition against idolatry, God had said, in effect, you must never use any kind of image in worship. That prohibition forbids more than we normally assume. Yes, idolatry 
Idolatry includes more than worshiping false gods and more than the use of images to worship false gods. It also includes what the Israelites did, using images to worship the true God. Make sure you get this. Idolatry includes both the worship of false gods and the worship of the true God in forbidden ways. God absolutely forbids the use of any physical or visible images to represent him, and that includes three-dimensional statues, two-dimensional carvings that we call bas-relief. It also includes two-dimensional images such as paintings and videos. Why? Because any kind of image, whether it's a statue or a carving or a painting or a moving picture, cannot avoid conveying information about God that is not true. Let me say that again. Any kind of representation of God in the form of an image cannot avoid presenting information about God that is not true. Only words have the ability to state what is true about God without also conveying error about God. Only words have the ability to state what is true about God without also conveying error about God. We're going to return to that idea in a few minutes. Now, I want to move forward at this point to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. There, Moses is going to refer back to the events of Exodus 19 and 20 when the Israelites were standing at the base of the mountain. As I read these verses, I want you to listen very carefully for the words form, voice, and likeness. Form, voice, and likeness. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting with verse 4. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Did you notice how often God says, make no form, make no image, make no likeness? 
I count 10 times that God forbids all such actions. And the frequency of that warning suggests that there is an inherent danger in the use of images in worship. Let me suggest to you some reasons why it's dangerous to use images in worship and why God used language alone to express his nature to us. Then I will conclude with some suggestions on how we can protect ourselves from the power and the danger of images. The first reason why it's dangerous to use images in worship is that images are ambiguous. Images are ambiguous. Let me elaborate. The first reason why images are ambiguous is that while they can sometimes convey facts, they can never reliably convey thoughts. I want you to take a look at this photograph. Some of you may know this photograph. Some of you, perhaps the younger folks in here, may never have seen it. This is one of the most famous photographs of all time. Look at that photo. What do you see when you look at that photo? You see one man shooting another man in broad daylight. The man being shot appears to have his hands tied behind his back. There's a soldier on the left who's looking on. He's wearing a helmet. But it's hard to tell whether he's smiling in approval or he's grimacing. And then there's a fourth man who appears to be casually walking by as if what is happening is perfectly normal. Now, assuming that this photo is authentic and it hasn't been modified or doctored, it appears that an execution is taking place. If you had some additional outside information, you might be able to identify the people in the photo, the location where it was taken, and perhaps even the date and the time. And it turns out that in this particular case, we know all of those things. Now, again... Assuming the authenticity of the photo, many facts can be seen in this photograph. But does the photograph convey any kind of unambiguous message? Not really. Some people look at this photo and their thought would be, war is a terrible thing. Others might look at the photo and think something like this. If guns were outlawed, the world would be a safer place. As it turns out, the person who's being shot is a North Vietnamese agent, and the person who is shooting him is a South Vietnamese general. The general is carrying out a standard military procedure, the execution of a spy. A person from South Vietnam might see in this photo a message like this. Justice finally catches up with a wicked enemy spy who has caused many of my people to die. A person from North Vietnam might see a very different message. Another hero of our cause bravely pays the ultimate price to free us from Western aggression. By the way, take one more look at the photo. Look a little higher in the photo. You see that one of the clouds in the photo looks a little bit like a flying saucer. Maybe the guy who took this photo wasn't really interested in the shooting at all. Maybe his real interest was in that thing that looks like a cloud and his purpose was to document what he believed was a UFO. 
You see, without accompanying language to give a clear message, it's impossible to know what message this photo is intended to convey or even whether it's intended to convey a message at all. Do you see the problem? Images are ambiguous because they can sometimes convey facts, but they can never reliably convey thoughts. Now, when I was a kid, I remember being told what people claimed was an old Chinese proverb. Perhaps you've heard this one. A picture is worth a thousand words. How many of you were told that was a Chinese proverb? Okay, well, I've asked lots of Chinese people, and they've never heard of it. It's kind of a funny thing. Um, Wherever that proverb comes from, it's only partially true. Now, I would modify that proverb in the following way. A picture may be worth a thousand words, but it is not worth a single thought. Do you see the point? Only language has the ability to convey thoughts clearly and unambiguously. Now, there's a second reason why images are ambiguous, and that's that they arouse emotions without informing the mind. Now, the photo that we just looked at has the power to arouse all kinds of emotions. Some seeing that photo would feel pity. Others would feel a swell of patriotism. Some would feel anger. Others would feel hatred. Some would even feel sick. But once again, that image does not actually convey thoughts. There's no clear, unambiguous message. There's no propositional communication. There's no actual statement. There's no clear transfer of meaning from one mind to another. See, only language has the ability to do that, to transfer a thought from one mind to another mind. Now, we've seen that images are dangerous because they're ambiguous, but there's a second reason why they're dangerous. When we attempt to use images to convey truth, and particularly when we attempt to use images to convey truth from Scripture, images can never convey just enough information. They always convey too much And by conveying too much, they unavoidably convey error. Let me give you a couple of examples. Some of you may have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Personally, when that movie came out, I refused to watch it, and I will refuse to watch it until the day of my death. But I heard about it from a number of Christian friends who went to see it. And they told me, how this movie had moved them emotionally. They told me how they had never felt the agony of Christ so vividly. They told me how they came away from that movie with a greater appreciation for the Father's love that was demonstrated and for the Son's courage that was demonstrated at the cross. Now, those responses are not bad. They're not bad. But remember, those are the responses of people who already knew the biblical story. But in their reports of the movie, they identified many things 
that appeared in the movie that weren't in the Bible. Snakes slithering around the base of the cross. Satan appearing as a rather androgynous character stalking Jesus wherever he went. Torture of Jesus that went far beyond what is described in the Bible. Grossly wrong portrayals of the Jews. The movie even claims that Jesus invented tables and chairs. And I don't think that's true. Even though I didn't see the movie, it's obvious to me that the movie had to convey many things that must have been an error. Now, certainly, the actors didn't look like the real people who were involved. Undoubtedly, their costumes weren't fully authentic. Every scene in that movie had to take place in some setting, even when the Bible describes no setting. The depiction of the darkness that descended upon the earth could never accurately portray what really happened. You see, an image that is made in an effort to convey the biblical text can never avoid adding information that isn't in the text. When you go from the biblical statement, Jesus wept, to an actor trying to depict that statement, you can't help adding to what Scripture actually says. Did Jesus weep silently? Or did he weep with loud sobs? How long did he weep? Did people see him weep? Did he blow his nose afterward? Any attempt to convert a biblical statement into an image, or worse, into a moving image, must always introduce additional imagined and therefore inaccurate information. This is one of the reasons why I personally refused to see the movie, and personally, my conviction is that the second commandment forbids us from making representations of Jesus, even two-dimensional. You see, I don't want my understanding of the biblical text to be polluted by someone else's imagination regarding how a biblical story that is conveyed in words would appear in images. By the way, did you ever notice the connection between the word image and the word imagination? Very close. Let me offer another example of how images unavoidably convey too much and therefore they unavoidably convey error. Statues and paintings of Jesus. Now, if you go to Europe, I've never been to Italy. I haven't seen this, but I've seen photographs of these kinds of things. You'll see many paintings and statues of Jesus. A lot of these come from the time of the Renaissance. They typically picture Jesus as being pale-skinned, rather frail, with European features, and long curly hair. To a large extent, the people who painted those pictures and carved those statues were picturing Jesus as one of them. Long hair may not have been effeminate in those days, but today it often gives that kind of an impression. Isn't it interesting that the Bible gives no description of Jesus? 
We don't know whether he was tall or short, thin or fat or muscular. We don't know whether he was light-skinned or dark-skinned. We don't know whether he had straight or crooked teeth. We don't know what color his eyes were. All we know from Isaiah 53, verse 2, is that there was nothing particularly notable about his appearance. Apparently, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to know anything about how he looked. Why? I can suggest some possible reasons. First of all, if we knew how he looked, we would be tempted to make an image of him. And secondly, it wasn't his looks that mattered. What mattered were his works, what he did, and his words, what he said. The Bible uses language and language alone to report his words and his works. Now, here we come to what I believe is the reason why God revealed himself and his message to us through language and not through images. The reason is that language, this amazing tool of communication that God himself invented, and by the way, Don't fall for the silly cartoons that show cavemen running around grunting before they learn to speak, right? Adam and Eve knew how to speak from the moment that they were created. Language is a gift from God to man. Man didn't invent language. Language has a very special ability. Language has the ability to transfer thoughts, and by this I mean complete, meaningful, propositional statements from one mind to another. It's almost like what we would call telepathy. God created language so that we could think his thoughts and so that we could receive his truth and so that we could do so clearly, unambiguously, and without confusion. Consider with me some of the differences between images and language. First, Unlike images, language is limited in what it conveys. The thoughts that language conveys don't need a visual background. They don't have color, size, or shape. Language is limited in what it conveys. When we read in John 11.35 that Jesus wept, we only learn one thing. Jesus wept. Any additional reliable information about his weeping must come from additional statements in the biblical text. Now, second, and this is a big one, language, unlike images, has the ability to treat both what is concrete and what is metaphysical. Language has the power to convey complex and abstract ideas. Images are always limited to a particular setting, but language can make universal statements. How could any image accurately convey, without ambiguity, the following statement of 2 Corinthians 5.21? For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. How could an image convey that? How could any image accurately and unambiguously convey the precious truth that's expressed in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How could you express that in an image? 
Unlike images which can sometimes convey facts and which often have the power to arouse emotions but are powerless to convey thoughts, language is incisive. Unlike images which, if we attempt to use them to convey thoughts, often distract or confuse or mislead us, language goes straight to the heart of a matter. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 4 when he was describing God's word? He said, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is incisive. God in his infinite wisdom and kindness has given us the precious tool of language so that we can know him and what he desires of us. Images can never accomplish these vital purposes. And worse yet, images present many dangers. Let's consider some of those dangers for a few moments. You see, we live in a world that's increasingly moving away from language toward images. Have you noticed that? This is nowhere more evident than in the world of advertising, where images and emotions driven by images and associations created by images are used to manipulate our desires. But even in journalism and news reporting, which is supposed to be objective, Have you noticed that less is being said and more is being shown? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how newspapers and news programs have fewer and fewer words and more and more photos and videos? Have you noticed how with the coming of video, popular music these days is much less about lyrics and it's more about images and costumes and motion and dance and things like that? As our world becomes more and more image-oriented, we who know Christ face the danger of being manipulated and misled by images, both still images and moving images, what we call videos. Let me conclude with a few suggestions on how we can protect ourselves from such manipulation and misinformation. Number one. Read and listen more and watch less. Place more of your attention on language and less on visuals. Read your Bible. Read good Christian books. Read classic literature. And think about what you read and hear. Evaluate and, when appropriate, appreciate good literature. Read scripture and think about what you're reading. Read scripture out loud in your house to your family and to yourself. Listen to recordings of the Bible being read. Listen to good sermons. Train your mind to evaluate what's coming in in the form of language. Remember Job's words from chapter 12 where he said, Does not the ear test words as the mouth tastes its food? Take Job's advice. Test what comes to you in the form of language. Number two, 
be aware of images and ask yourself when you're observing images, is someone attempting to manipulate my thinking or my feelings through this image, through this video, through this movie, through this photograph? Now, I know that we all like to go to a good movie and movies are wonderful because you're in a dark room and there's that screen up there and you almost forget where you are. It's very easy to become immersed. But instead of allowing yourself simply to be immersed when you watch movies or watch TV or watch videos on the web, learn to become an observer. Now, Mi Young often tells me I'm ruining the movie when I make comments during the movie. But I think it's a good thing sometime to quietly ruin the movie for the person who's next to you. All right? Step back when you're watching something. Ask yourself, why did the person or the people who created this image or this video do it that way? Think about the emotions that are arising in you as you observe. Don't be a passive observer. Be an an active evaluator of what comes to you through the gate of your eyes. Number three, never assume that an image or a video is real or is accurate or is giving you the entire picture. Let me say that again. Never assume that an image or a video is real or is accurate or is giving you the entire picture. Don't trust without verification. As the electronic world becomes more and more advanced, we have less and less reason to trust images and videos. Now, most of you have read books like 1984 that anticipated a time when everywhere where people would be would be under video surveillance. And I remember thinking, boy, in a world like that, there would be no crime. But that is not true, is it? As the electronic world becomes more and more advanced, we have less and less reason to trust images and videos. It's easy to doctor, to edit, and even to create from nothing convincing videos that appear to depict real things that never actually happened. Now, many of you know my son Caleb. Some of you know that he used to make a video news program for his school. He made an interesting comment in a recent conversation. He said, I used to think that as video cameras became more and more common, knowing the reality of what's happening in the world would become easier and easier. But the exact opposite is happening. Who shoots the video, what they show, and how they edit can completely obscure what happened. That was a wise observation. In this electronic world, we can never safely say, What we used to say, and I'm not sure it was safe even back then, seeing is believing. In the electronic world, seeing should not be believing. Number four, evaluate everything, both what you see and what you hear and what you read through the grid of Scripture. God's Word is the only final, reliable standard of truth. And I am convinced, particularly in these days and in the days that are going to come, that the more we know God's word, the better we will be able to protect ourselves from the power of images to mislead us, 
to manipulate us and to deceive us. Will you pray with me? Father, in many ways, it's a blessing to live in the electronic world. I am very grateful that when my wife and I are on the other side of the world, we can speak to our children and family members and friends here almost instantaneously. There is much useful information. There's much comfort and good communication that we have today that people even 50 years ago did not have. Thank you for those things. But Father, as you well know and far better than we, the evil one always takes what is good and twists it. Father, I pray for myself that you would enable me to be more careful regarding what I believe from what I see. Give me a greater hunger for your word, a greater awareness of when images are being used to manipulate me and others. Protect us, Father, from the lies of Satan and also from the kind of manipulation that would seek to use us and would distract us from a faithful walk with you. Thank you, Father, that in your wisdom and in your kindness, you provided language and you gave to us your revelation in the written word. Let us appreciate it, learn it, teach it, proclaim it, and trust it. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.